If you would, go ahead and please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. We won't be doing the, the uh, verse in our bulletin because it was done before. But uh, John chapter 15, what I want to talk about today is something that um, I've been thinking about over the last couple of years, a own personal study. Um, I pray today that uh, it whets an appetite for you to delve into it yourselves. And that topic, that discussion is our union with Christ. Over the years, when I've heard these words, I've had a a superficial understanding of what they mean. You know, like we're part of this body of New Testament believers. We're united to Christ. But there's so much more to it than that. In fact, you're going to probably hear me say things like that, that, that that's true, but there's more. And we're going to delve a little bit more into the more today. Um, A lot of New Testament believers, the church today, when we think of our Savior, we think of a Savior who's outside of us. You know, Jesus, he's up on the throne. He's interceding for us with the Father, and that's true. But there's more than that. Our Savior indwells us. It's not just that he's up there. We have a Savior that is not only sitting at the throne of God, but we have a Savior that indwells us personally. And then it gets even better than that, because not only does he indwell us, which is one aspect of it, but we are also united to him. Wherever he is, we are in some sense. Wherever we are, he is, in another sense. Luther said it this way. He said, but faith must be taught correctly, and we're going to try to do that today. We're going to try to teach it correctly. Namely, that by it, speaking of faith, you are so cemented to Christ that he and you are as one person, which cannot be separated, but remains attached to him forever, and declares, I am as Christ. And Christ, in turn, says, I am as the sinner that is attached to me and I to him. For by faith, we are joined together into one flesh. Baker's Evangelical Dictionary says it this way, speaking of union with Christ, that it's the present experience Those two words, the present experience, not future. The present experience of the risen Christ indwelling the believer's heart by the Spirit. Now that's true, but there's more. Because that's only half the story. That's Jesus indwelling us. But we must also understand that we are united individually and corporately to him. Now... As I say that, I want you to test me. Okay, we, in, in Acts 17.11, we'll see in a few months when we get to Acts 17.11, Paul and Silas were in Thessalonica, and they were preaching the Scriptures, and uh, basically they got thrown out of town by those who didn't believe it. And they went to Berea, where they preached. And the Word tells us in Acts 17.11 that they were more fair-minded because they searched the Scriptures to see whether what Paul was preaching was true. So I ask, as we go today, let's search the scriptures and see if this is true. John 
15, verses 1 through 5, if you will join me in reading God's word. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he prunes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. The passage clearly spells out that this is a two-way union. Christ in us, and us united to him. We abide with him. As Luther said, we are so cemented to Christ. And so, if we could revise Baker's dictionary a little bit, we would say it's the present experience of the risen Christ indwelling the believer and the believer abiding in the risen Christ by the agency of the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't understand how that works. Well, I don't understand how that works, at least. You know, I, I have an idea. I could give that, would just be my surmise. Now, I also have a smartphone. Probably most of you have a smartphone or at least a phone. I don't understand totally how it works. You know, I have an idea, but here's what I know is I know just about every day I get in my car and my car has this little thing where I can press the button on the steering wheel and I say, call Rebecca Milligan on cell. And my steering wheel talks to the little sink that's in my Ford and it talks to my phone and my phone talks to a cell tower, and the cell tower talks to some other satellite who figures out where Rebecca is, and then it finds the cell tower closest to her, and she and her car in the same sink says, Jim is calling. I don't understand how that works, but I rely on it every day. I use it every day. It's part of my life every day, even though I don't understand how it works. I want you today to walk away to start to think about how and what this means to you and how you should rely on it every day, even if it's a mysterious concept. In fact, in history, they used to, well, even today in some denominations, but they'll call this the mystical union with Christ. Mystical doesn't mean it's magical. It just means it's a spiritual mystery. It's not just symbolic. It's real. As we Today, we have the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. We don't understand it necessarily. The Bible just states it. The Father is God, Jesus is God, the Spirit is God, but there is only one God. We have the hypostatic union of Christ, that meaning Christ is 100% man, he's 100% God. We don't understand how that works. It's not 200%, it's 100%, but... How it works. In fact, they had to have a, a, a union in the early church to try to figure out how this conference to get together, how this works. But for the sake of doctrine is not where we want to go. We want to go to take this doctrine and make it part of our lives for the refreshment of our spirit, refreshment of our souls today. And so let's take a look at it. Let's delve into it a little bit. Let's scratch the surface and see if we can get something that we can walk away with today. 
You know, if you were out in the marketplace and someone just asked you, you know, are, are you a spiritual person, what, how might you answer, or what you, might you say? And probably the most common thing, at least in the Western culture, is we say, well, I'm a Christian, and that's a good word to say. That's a good biblical word. You might say, well, I'm a Bible believer. Again, that's good. We're a reverence Bible church here. We might say some denominational name. If you're from in the South, you might hear, well, I'm Southern Baptist quite a bit, or you might hear, I'm Lutheran. But what's interesting is, now you just take that, that term Christian, Christ follower, and you know there were Christ followers that left. We get that in John chapter 6. There were Christ that were following and then and they left. Is there another name that can tie us closer together? The name Christian is only used three times in the Greek New Testament. But there's a phrase, a group of phrases, that is used over 200 times in the New Testament to describe you and me, if you're a believer in Christ today. Let's look at some of them. In Christ, or in Christ Jesus, or in Jesus Christ, it's used 85 times, 82 times by the Apostle Paul. In the Lord, 44 times, mostly by Paul. In him, speaking of Christ, 89 times. In me, Jesus uses those terms when he's speaking about our union with him. In us, Christ, speaking about our relationship with him and the Father. In whom? In total, somewhere near 240 times. These six phrases account for our description. And how often do we go through the New Testament when we're reading and we just go by those in Christ or in whatever it might, the term and the phrase might be. We, we go right by it, but it's the term the New Testament uses to describe who we are, who our identity is. We're in Christ. We're in the Lord. Let's look Colossians chapter 2. I'll just read it. It says, In him you were also circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised in him through faith, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. See those with him? They have some, they have some meaning. We were buried with him. We saw in the in the verses we read this morning, we were crucified with him. We were raised with him. Are these just terms to use? Do they have no meaning? They absolutely do have meaning. We need to look at ourselves as having died with Christ, our flesh, who we were as being dead and raised up with Christ. Ephesians 1.4 says, Just as he, speaking of the Father, chose us in him, Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, I, even as I read it, I just kind of went right by it. He chose us in him. We're chosen in Christ. It's about Jesus. It's not about just the pure concept of election. Or We're chosen in him. We're there to be in Christ. It's so important. It's so important in one standpoint is, in God's mind, this occurred before the foundation of time, right? 
He chose us before the foundation of the world. Again, not easy to understand how this whole concept of God choosing us and us choosing him and how the two relate. And I've always liked Luther in this because Luther says these are two seemingly paradoxical statements and truths in Scripture. But Luther says they're reconciled in the cross. They're reconciled in Jesus Christ. However those two come together, it's going to all be about Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. So, what's our concept? To be so cemented to him that we're never going to be separated for him. Does that bring up, you know, we shall never be separated. Nothing shall separate you from the love of Christ. Why? Because we're attached to him. We're part of him. He's part of us. In Jude, it goes to say we're going to be preserved in Jesus Christ. Guess what? You're not preserving yourselves. All your good works, whatever you might be doing, isn't preserving your relationship with Christ. Christ is preserving your relationship with Christ. It's upon him. It's his work. Another example in Paul, Colossians 1.28 Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Paul desires, he's talking about being presented, talking about presenting us perfect, not in our works, not in what we've done, not in all the great things, but perfect in Christ. That really when you start to think about these things, should start to bring joy, should start to bring, it's not dependent upon me. When did I become in Christ? When I believed, from my standpoint, before the foundation of the world, from God's standpoint, right? It's not about my efforts, what I worry about, what I think about, Scripture goes on even further and it starts to use some metaphors. Okay, it's not just enough to state it, but it uses some metaphors, the Holy Spirit, to give us to understand it. The one we read this morning, vines and branches. How do vines and branches work? How does the fruit come? Well, they're interdependent upon each other, right? The fruit comes from the entire system, the entire vine and branch system. But one that I want to... even take a little bit further time with, if you will, turn to the book of Ephesians. Turn right, go a f- few chapters from where you're at into Ephesians. We're going to go to Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32. For this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Paul's taking this, which is a mystery in and of itself, the union of man and wife to be one flesh, but he's using it as a metaphor for us to understand, and he, Paul calls it a mystery, that mystical union of Christ and the church. And I think, you know, even if you've been married a while and 
For those that have been around for quite a while, you see them, husband and wife, finishing the sentences of the other person as they, as they talk, right? Or husbands, you know how much trouble you are in by the look you get across the way, right? You, you fully understand it after a period of time. After a period of time, we start to come and realize what this union means for us, what this togetherness brings us. We're talking about a real but mysterious union. Now that's all, it's all good, it's doctrine, we understand you know, the concept, but what does, it mean? what does it mean for us today? What's it going to mean when you walk out the doors and you go out in the courtyard, when you go home? Well, one thing I want us to do is to not just think of some of the benefits that come with salvation. And it's not, and this is appropriate for this time, it's not like God is a divine Santa Claus, right? That he's just handing out a bunch of, of gifts when you get saved. Now, he does that. Remember my statement? That's true, okay? Heavenly mansions, whatever they may be, immortal bodies that uh, full heads of hair that are thinning, uh, eyes that will again see and legs that walk without the knees hurting. Yes, we get all of that. But we need to apprehend, and I really want you to hear this, what we need to apprehend is that what we get is Jesus. What we get is a union with our Savior. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. We will never be separated from, from his love. And that's, when we think about that, that doctrine of eternal security, it's not just a doctrine, it's because we're part of Christ, and Christ is part of us. I found uh, the following prose, a little in the uh, book called The Marrow of Modern Divinity. It was a book written in the 17th century by Edward Fisher. And uh, Edward is speaking about you as a believer here in Christ, and uh, it starts off, whence it must needs follow. Okay, it's 17th century English, so what does that mean? Whence it must needs follow is saying, what I'm saying is true, and it has to be true. There's a logical argument coming. It has to be true. Listen to it. That you cannot be condemned except Christ be condemned with you. Neither can Christ be saved except you be saved with him. The concept that if you're a believer here today in Christ, you have made that profession of faith, regeneration, the Holy Spirit's regenerated you, you don't have to worry about being condemned because Christ is not condemned and you're united to him. And you know you're going to be saved because Christ is sitting at the throne of God. And we sit with him according to Ephesians 1 with him in the heavenly places. All you need to do, I often give um, this as an assignment to people, and all you need to do is go read Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2, and you will see so many in hymns, if you will, that are in there, and what you get by being in him. I give that as an assignment because there's over 20 of them. It's something good to do this week. Maybe just take Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, and see that all the things that you receive because you are in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. We need, as part of our community groups, 
for those of you who are part of our community groups. We, at the very beginning, we talked about idolatry. What are the idols in our life? You know what the, I mean, I don't know if it came out in yours, but the biggest idol in our lives is self, right? The biggest idol is our own self, what we want. And we need to stop our idolatry of self and start looking to Jesus and start looking to our identity being in him, not in what we do or, you know, what we like or whatever it might be. It's, you know, who are you? Well, I'm, I'm dead in Christ. What? You look like alive. Well, I am. I'm, I'm alive in Christ. You know, I'm dead in Christ. I'm alive in Christ. I'm risen with Christ. That's my identity. We really need to really grab hold of what that means for us. You know, that we're, we're with Christ as husband and wife are together, as they are joined together. In some way, a mysterious way, Paul says, that we are with him in that same way. A real union. Espoused and husband. Now, now God, not only did he come up with the concept of marriage, Adam and Eve. Now, he also came up with the concept, let me finish this, he also came up with the concept of community property. Okay, now man has perverted that in ways that uh, it means and used in the wrong ways, but God actually came up with this because we know this occurred before the foundation of the world. Let, Let me show you what I mean. Everything that Christ did in the work of salvation, everything that he did on this earth to bring about our atonement, we can rightfully claim as our own. We are united to him. Everything that he has and done in that relation, we can claim as our own. For example, his death. We, get, we don't have to die. He died for us. His punishment. He took our punishment, right? The punishment that was laid on him, we can claim that. His burial. His resurrection. His ascension. His sinless perfection. In fact, I mean, you're never going to be buried. You know that, right? I mean, you are never going to be buried because you isn't this flesh. You is the person that's inside, your spirit, your soul. That's who you are. If I were to get in an accident and happen to lose both of my legs, I would still be Jim Milligan, right? Because who I am is inside. Who I am is the spirit and the soul. And the second that my body ceases to breathe on this earth, I am immediately present with Jesus Christ. What gets buried five days later is not me, right? And, and even if, you know, we, we use this term because we say earthly remains because we realize who we really are are in the, in the heavens as you're a believer in Christ. So, you know, somebody came up to me the other day and said, you know, it was a really tough year. You know, I, I buried both my mom and dad. They were believers, but I buried them. And you just want to say, no, you, you didn't. They went to be with Jesus. You buried their earthly remains. We claim Christ's burial, his burial in the grave for us. 
his sinless perfection. All that Christ has done is ours. Now, community property, all that I have is his, right? Well, what does he get? He gets, well, he gets my pride, he gets my arrogance, he gets my anger, my envy, my doubts, my evil thoughts, everything I have to offer him, sin. And he took it, and he took it on the cross, community property, he bore our sins on the cross, he suffered our punishment, and everything he has, everything he provides is to, for our inheritance. The sin we committed was born by him. The devil can't successfully prosecute you. The, the, the word says that he's an adversary who's seeking to destroy you. The devil can't successfully prosecute you. Because we have an advocate. We have a defense attorney. His name is Jesus Christ. And guess what? We're united to him. Right? He has wholehearted interest in defending you. Not only are we united to the defense attorney, but we're united to the judge. Because John 5.22 says that even the Father is not judging anyone. All judgment has been given to the Son. We're united to the defense attorney. We're united to the judge. We have it made because of all that Christ did and all that he paid. The word, see how important it is? The word tells us these things about our united espoused. See how fearful it is to sin against another saint? That saint who is united to Christ, if we put forth our anger against them because they too are united. Now the world hates us because of this because the world hates Christ. And we suffer persecution. We're promised that. We're promised to suffer tribulation. But no, our persecution is because we're united to Jesus Christ. In fact, we don't go through suffering except that it's also felt by Christ. Now, how do we know that? Well, there was this man named Saul. We're going to learn about him in a few weeks as we go through. And our, our first glimpses of Paul from Scripture is a man who's holding the robes as Stephen is being stoned, right? He's persecuting the church. The early church is afraid of Saul because he's taking them into the synagogue and having them beaten. But one day, while Saul, in his endeavors to persecute the church, was on the road to Damascus, and something hit him, and as a bright light and a voice came. And what does that voice say? It says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my believers, it's why are you persecuting me? Because Christ sees the persecution that you endure on his name's sake as him being persecuted. You are so united to him that you won't go through death except on the very flip side of that you will be face to face with our Savior. 
You will see his face. Though we see dimly now, you will then see perfectly. And so today, as, as we think about this, what I want to do to kind of end, I want to read you a list of some of those 243. Not many, but some of those 243. And I have full... I just believe that as we go through that list, the Holy Spirit's going to speak to your heart and mind, and you're going to say, wow, or I didn't think about that, or isn't that neat, or something about that along those lines. And I want you to note it. I want you to remember it. Okay, and we're going to, to then, after I read the list, we're going to pray and go into communion. But here are just some of the things that we get Now, the main thing we get is Jesus. But here are some of the things that come along with that union. For the sake of the audio, I'm going to read the scripture reference too so that others can go see it. Redemption in Christ, Romans 3.24. We're justified in Christ, Romans 3.24. We're buried with him, Romans 6.4. We're alive in Christ, Romans 6.11. We have eternal life in Christ, Romans 6.23. There is no condemnation in Christ. Romans 8.1. We're free in Christ. Romans 8.2. We have the inseparable love in Christ. Romans 8.39. We're approved in Christ. Romans 16.10. We're sanctified in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.2. We're wise in Christ. 1 Corinthians 4.10. We're established in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.21. We're victors in Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.14. We're a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17. We're righteous in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. We have liberty in Christ. Galatians 2.4. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians 1.3. We are chosen in Him. Ephesians 1.4. We're adopted by and to Christ. Ephesians 1.5. We're rich in grace in Christ. Ephesians 2.7. We're forgiven in Christ. Ephesians 4.32. We're strong in grace in Christ. 2 Timothy 2.1. We're saved in Christ. 2 Timothy 2.10. We're bold in Christ. Philemon 1.8. We're prisoners in Christ. Philemon 1.23. We're preserved in Christ. Jude 1.1. We're consoled in Christ. Philippians 2.1. We're perfect in Christ. Colossians 1.28. We have an inheritance in Him. Ephesians 1.11. We walk in Him. Colossians 2.6. We abide in Him. John 15.4-5. Our hope is in Him. John 3.3. 3. We're strong in the Lord. Ephesians 6.10. And we're complete in Him. Colossians 2.10. I don't know, but that's a pretty good list of things that identify who we are that are so much more descriptive than some of the terms that we use. We're complete in Christ. We're united to a Savior who indwells us forever and whom we are attached to forever. This should cause us to worship Him. It should cause us to just love Him and cherish Him. And so we're going to go into a time of prayer and then into a time of communion. And when the time of communion, I want you to think about 
the thing that said, oh, wow, wasn't that neat about what Christ said in our union with him. So join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We thank you for your word, which, without which this revelation, we would not understand the fullness of who we are in you. We thank you that these words talk about a completeness in you that is apart from our works and our efforts. It's not something that's perishable. It's something that is forever. Lord, in a few minutes, we're going to join in communion with you. Prepare our hearts. Help us to understand just the impact of what that new covenant that you initiated on that night means to us. We thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.